Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Not being able to see myself, not being able to feel the pain, I didn't understand just how severe these burns were, how disfigured I was. My entire appearance was gone. I had no idea. At 28, Jason Schechterly was living the dream. Happily married, a father of two young kids, doing work he felt called to do, serving others as a Phoenix police officer. And then one night, within the span of one second, his life as he knew it was over. My patrol car was struck from behind by a taxi cab, and the driver was suffering an epileptic seizure at the time and was just continuing to build up speed and build up speed till he eventually had to hit something, and that something was me. And according to the investigation, he was doing 115 miles an hour when he ran into me. And this is a 40-mile-an-hour downtown city street, so it's hard to even fathom that speed, that that impact. Upon impact, Jason's car burst into flames and knocked him unconscious. The burns to his body were so extensive and severe that he was put into a medically induced coma for almost three months. Today, we are going to speak to a miracle survivor, Jason Schechterly, who after losing his physical appearance, went through 56 surgeries and fought his way back to a life that he now wouldn't trade with anyone in the world. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let people fight for you when you can't fight for yourself. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Welcome to All The Wiser Podcast, where we share jaw-dropping stories of extreme adversity and the inspiring wisdom that comes on the other side of pain. We also donate $2,000 an episode to charity and celebration of our incredible guests. Do you ever wonder what would happen if your worst fear came true? Like something that the mere thought of just made you panic. What would you do? Who would you be? What would your life look like? I'm about to introduce you to a truly incredible example of the triumph of the human spirit to endure through unimaginable pain. But before I do that, I want to tell you that in no way should you compare your suffering or anything difficult you may be dealing with to Jason or his story. We are not here to say so-and-so had it so much worse than you. Comparative suffering, which is something we talk about in this episode, is unkind and unproductive. We are all fighting our own battles, myself included. 
I hope when you listen to this episode, you think of Jason's words as a friend's, waving to you fondly as you continue the journey forward through whatever challenges you may be facing, big or small. And now I bring you the incredible Jason Schechterly. Hello, Jason, and welcome to All the Wiser. Well, thank you very much for having me. Jason, I always love to have our guests introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, I would introduce myself as Jason Schechterly I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I am a husband, father of three, and former Phoenix police officer. Jason, I want to start with your upbringing. What can you tell me about the backdrop of your childhood? Oh, my childhood was just such a blessing, something I look back on so fondly. I grew up in the West Valley, outskirts of Phoenix, on some horse property, and just had a just had a very simple life. You know, I, I consider myself very lucky. I had a stay-at-home mom. My dad was an engineer, you know, making a, a modest living, but we just... I just wouldn't change anything about it. It was awesome. And I know you had, like all kids, early childhood dreams of of what your future may be. Can you tell me about that? What did you envision for your future as you as you thought about growing up and being a man one day? You know, it's funny looking back, even with hindsight being twenty twenty, I don't remember ever being really locked into something. I was really good at golf. And so I had some dreams early on of, well, maybe I'll play college golf or professional golf. So you grow up in this very idyllic childhood. As you said, you were an exceptional golfer, and I know you actually had a scholarship. So what's next for you? You you graduate. Tell me about those early years after graduating. Well, I graduated, yeah, I was working at a movie theater with all my friends and it was just the greatest job in the world. You know, you're up working until like midnight or something. So your curfew kind of gets thrown out the window <laughs> when you have uh, a job and responsibilities and I'm playing golf and yeah, graduating high school was just one of the milestones. And then I did go to a junior college uh, here, Phoenix Community College to play golf and it didn't take very long for me to realize, you know, I just, I wasn't as good at golf as maybe I thought I was or what I, what would sustain me for the long term. And that's when I started to really think, you know, I think maybe a career in law enforcement might serve me well. So I, I finished only one semester of my freshman year. And then I went and joined the Air Force to follow in the footsteps of my dad and my grandfather. I uh, did it on my own, which thinking back is is just amazing. If one of my children did that, I would probably lose my mind. And I just went to the recruiter's office and said, I want to join the Air Force. I want to be a cop. And he was like, okay, here you go. And uh, I signed up and I left less than a year after graduating high school. And so you joined the Air Force and that desire to serve, to be a job and of service. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. You know, I wish, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you would think at my age now that I could, I was just always drawn to serving others, being in uniform, absolutely love our country, was so blessed to just growing up 
you know, again, in the, the Reagan years and, the, and seeing the, the country kind of grow and unfold. And, and selfishly, I needed some structure and some discipline. And I knew that the military would provide that to me. And what can you tell me about your time in the military and your experience? How do you, how do you change during the season of your life? Yeah, it's a it's a mixture of of emotions. I certainly had to grow up very quick because uh, all of a sudden I'm carrying guns and I'm working around nuclear weapons in these airplanes. And you know, we had just come out of the first Iraq War. The invasion of Kuwait had just ended, and so things were just very serious. And I had to grow up very quickly. And then I ended up going to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, for the 1994 Haitian refugee crisis, which that that was very meaningful service. You're you're trying to take care of the Haitians. They have dreams and goals of coming to America. We've got them in in these tent city camps while the politicians trying to figure out what's going on. But to see them all of a sudden with all their belongings living in tents, we're having to make food for them, which was probably not the food that they were used to. You're playing soccer with the kids, and kids are so resilient. The younger ones would be just running around laughing and smiling and and loved our, you know, these big tough guys in, in their camouflage uniforms. But then the teenagers would be suffering because they're not learning. They're not getting an education. They're not with their friends. They don't know what their future holds. And so it was just a, a mixture of really raw, vulnerable emotions that I was feeling and, and witnessing. Uh, and again, I was 21 years old. It was just, it helped form my views of the world's a big place and other people don't have it as good as you. And I learned gratitude very early on, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable to go from working at the movie theater with your friends to that experience in such a short span of time. So the, yeah, the growth, the growth there is, is clear. Thank you for that. So you would go on to Meet your wife. What can you tell me about that? Meeting her, why you were drawn to her, and sort of your your early years of marriage. So my my best friend growing up is a girl named Chrissy, and when I went into the military, she had become friends with who now is my wife Susie, and she would tell me stories about when they went out. And Susie, very extroverted, very fun, a vivacious person, and I'm. Is, well, back then at least, was a serious introvert. And uh, I used to think, oh my goodness, that is just, that's crazy. I could never be around that. And then I got home and we were actually at my homecoming party. I think it was about three days after I got home and all my friends were there. And so Chrissy had brought Susie and it was, uh, you know, when I first met her, I was like, wow, this girl's just beautiful. And we got along great and we became really good friends. And I turned to my friend Christy and I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And Christy kind of looked at me and was like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, like young people will do. But I, I was serious. I knew right in that moment I was going to marry that girl. And then I had to work my butt off, but I did it. So we're going to talk today about the day that changed your life in 2001, March 26, 2001. If you can just paint a picture of where you were in your life, your day-to-day life and what that looked like. I was truly in a state of perfection. Uh, I was 28 years old. I had been married for going on 
four years. We had two kids, a daughter named Kylie, and my son Zane was two years old. My parents were healthy, happily married. All four of my grandparents were alive and married. My brother and sister were both successful and happy. And I am doing a job that I was truly meant to be doing, called to be doing, being a Phoenix police officer. And every single day was just a beautiful blessing. My life was so perfect. I can't even really describe it. And so looking back, this was a day where everything changed for you. Do you, what do you remember about that specific day, you know, the hours leading up to the accident, if anything? I actually, I remember everything leading up to the accident. It was a very quiet, boring day. Took a couple of minor car accident calls, went on a couple of paper report calls. There just wasn't a whole lot going on. And about 11.30 p.m. that night, I answered up for a call that just a few moments later would change every facet of my life from that day on. Can you explain the sequence of events of the accident? Yes. So I answered up for a call that was actually not in my patrol zone and the officers were busy. So the call came out a second time. The first time it came out, I just ignored it because it it wasn't my responsibility. But when it came out again and it was clear that it was an emergency call and the officers in that area were busy. So I grabbed the radio and I said, I'll head that direction. And I had a long ways to travel. Again, it's out of my patrol zone. So I was running what we call code three, lights and siren, get there as quick as I can. And I approached a traffic light at 20th Street and Thomas, which is it's about five minutes east of downtown Phoenix. And it's a very busy part of the valley. There's a freeway overpass, Phoenix Children's Hospital, Arizona Heart Institute, just a lot in that part of town. And I had a red light. So even though I'm driving with my lights and siren, I still have a responsibility to come to a complete stop to make sure that people getting on and off the freeway will yield to my emergency vehicle. And it only takes a second and a half to clear an intersection. But just as I was going to proceed, my patrol car was struck from behind by a taxi cab. And the driver was suffering an epileptic seizure at the time and was just continuing to build up speed and build up speed until he eventually had to hit something. And that something was me. And according to the investigation, he was doing... 115 miles an hour when he ran into me. And this is a 40 mile an hour downtown city street. So it's hard to even fathom that speed, that that impact caused my car to burst into flames. I was knocked unconscious immediately and pushed me 270 feet through the intersection. And then miracles, twists of fate, timing, I came to stop 50 feet from a fire truck that was right there in the intersection. And, you know, then the, the chaos for them began to, to, this was not something they were expecting to see. So there I was trapped in a burning vehicle and they had to go to work and what they could to get me out. And you've described it as a series of small miracles that saved your yeah. life. What were those miracles? The first miracle, of course, was having a fire truck because uh, when being involved in a fire like that with that kind of heat, that kind of smoke, it is very, very difficult to survive. And I was knocked unconscious, so I wasn't able to help myself. However, being knocked unconscious is another miracle because instead of yelling and screaming 
and being in fear for my life and sucking in all that hot air, I was at complete peace and my breaths were shallow. So I wasn't inhaling those toxins and, and that smoke. So that was a miracle. My bulletproof vest, I consider a miracle because for as destructive and disfiguring as my injuries were, my chest and my stomach and my back were not burned. And the way burn injuries work, they're very constrictive and they will continue burning until you get them removed at the hospital. So if my chest had been burned like my arms or face, I wouldn't have been able to breathe. My lungs would not have been able to expand. So I would have died within just a couple of minutes. So the fire truck being knocked unconscious, the vest, how quickly they got me out of the car in 90 seconds. The work that they had to put in, I mean, the flames were so high, they were licking the bottom of the freeway overpass. The heat was incredible. And there they were, along with two police officers who showed up, cutting my seatbelt, fighting the fire, crawling into the burning vehicle to free my long, I'm six foot three, I weighed 200 pounds at the time, trying to extricate me out of a small driver's side window. They did that in 90 seconds, got me into an ambulance, and then another miracle, I'm two and a half miles away from what I think is the best burn center in the United States at Maricopa County Hospital, and I was on their trauma table in less than eight minutes. And nobody, and I mean nobody, during a critical incident has that timeline. From impact to emergency room in under eight minutes, it's absolutely unheard of. Yeah. It's when I was reading about the timeline, it really is unbelievable. It is. And obviously it's being burned as one of the most painful and horrifying injuries that a body can endure. And I read that that was something that you had actually feared your whole life. Is that true? I would say it was my only fear my whole life. But I remember when I was a young boy, maybe six or seven, I was playing with matches and I was lighting paper on fire. And I was in my bedroom and I was dropping them into a trash can. Well, it wasn't a metal can or I was young and not very smart, obviously playing with fire, but it was a trash can that that caught on fire and melted. And I ran screaming, you know, to my dad to, to, to take care of it. And he did. And then of course I was saying, I was sorry. And I was crying. And then that was my own, I, I was never scared of anything except fire. And what, what happened? Explain the impact on your body from the accident and the fire that day. The injuries were Burns to 43% of my body, my neck, head, and face being the worst. They were fourth degree, which is something I had never heard of. I thought third degree was the worst burns you can have. Fourth degree means it's down the last layers of muscle into the bone. My shoulders to my hands were third degree and the tops of my thighs. Uh, Outside of the burns, I had two cracked ribs and a mild concussion. Even though I was hit at that ridiculous speed, I would have gone home just a few hours after the accident probably. But so mostly it was just the burns. How long were you in the induced coma? And what do you remember about waking up, your first memories from waking up? Yeah, medically induced coma, uh, they did that because they the doctors were very open with my family that night because they had to get me into surgery right away. And I give my best friend, Brian, a lot of credit for waking my wife up, changing her life forever. Obviously, the the weight of the world on him, getting my parents out of bed, our friends. He did he did an amazing job, got everybody down there in about an hour. But the doctors were, were very frank and said, look, Jason's not going to survive this. The, 
the burns to his head and face, we've never seen anything this bad. So it, it happened very quickly, and, and they put me into a medically induced coma just to save me from any pain if I was surprised for a few days, knowing the surgeries and everything I was facing. And I ended up being in that medically induced coma for two and a half months. And a medically induced coma, you know, due to all the drugs, it's it's the blink of an eye. There are no dreams. There are no memories. There's nothing. I just, I was at work and then all of a sudden I'm in a hospital bed, but it was two and a, it was June 12th when I woke up. And, you know, of course I woke up a little groggy and confused. I mean, I always describe it as a, just a thousand thoughts flooding into my mind because I knew I was in the hospital. I, I could smell it. I could hear it. I couldn't open my eyes and couldn't figure out why I couldn't move. And I remember being at work. And so it was just all very confusing. And I can't remember if I, if I coughed or if I, if I mutter, muttered a word, but my wife was in the room with me. And I just, I still to this day, I can't imagine what she went through for those two and a half months as a wife, as a mom, all the responsibilities. But I'll never forget her, her voice was so calm and strong, even though she hadn't talked to me in, in so long. And she started to tell me what had happened. And, and that's, uh, that's when the, you know, I hate to say the nightmare began because that's such a dramatic way that's often used, but uh, I guess it's the truth. And when you say nightmare, to me, that seems like a very fair description of where you were at that time. Physically, emotionally, I imagine there's, I'm curious about both, certainly physically what you're going through, but I would imagine the layers of emotion, anger, depression. So if you can walk me through, you know, physically, emotionally, where where are you in those early days and weeks? Well, physically at first, again, because of all the medication, I didn't feel the pain. And so I also couldn't understand the severity of the injuries. And that was a good thing at first because my wife, you know, she was very honest with me. She told me I had been in a car accident. She told me that, you know, I'd been in a coma for two and a half months, which not even possible to get your mind wrapped around that. And then she told me that my car had caught on fire. And I actually... That's when the emotions you're describing started because I stopped her and I said, don't say another word to me. And internally, I was thinking the only thing I don't didn't want to happen. And you're telling me it did. But because I couldn't see myself, I was completely blind at the time. I didn't understand why. I just, I was still thinking, why can't I open my eyes? But not being able to see myself, not being able to feel the pain, I didn't understand just how severe these burns were, how disfigured I was, my entire appearance was gone. I had no idea. So that caused me to more focus on, I was angry about the fire for sure. And I was scared and all those things. But what I was angry and scared about was, what have my children been going through? What are they going to think of me when they see me? I mean, nothing means more to me than being a dad, nothing. And my wife, she's still there. She didn't leave. She's still there with me. Oh, and by the way, I've lost my job that I love so much. So I just had all these emotions and it did start me down that path. And not only is it normal, I think when you're in these situations, but it's absolutely required to go through this journey within yourself. If you have any hope of coming out the other side, you have to, you can't be told something 
tragic or life changing and just say, okay, let's move on. I had, I had to feel what I felt and I cried. I mean, every day I yelled and cussed at people who even dared walk into my room. I, there were so many days I was just completely quiet, didn't want to talk, trying to digest and process what had happened. So I, yeah, I went through all the emotions that we're capable of feeling for sure. And what do you learn about your state, your physical state and the injury? So you're, you wake up and you're blind. What else are you learning about what has happened to your body? Because you can't see yourself, right? So much, you know, obviously physically had changed. Right. And I wasn't learning a lot. Uh, and I found out later that a doctor, I believe a psychologist, had actually told me the extent of my injuries maybe two or three days after I woke up. Well, I still had so many drugs and one of the medically induced coma drugs is called Versed. And Versed is an amnesia memory blocker. So I, I had no, it's as if he didn't tell me anything, but everybody took for granted that I knew. Then you add in the different emotions of like what my wife's feeling, what my father is feeling what my sister is feeling, what my best friend's feeling. And they were hesitant, I think, to tell me too much because it was so bad what they were looking at. And they knew my life was, well, I mean, at the time, over. Even though I was alive, their life was, as I knew it, was over. And so I had to ask questions here and there. And looking back, I, I realized people were scared or hesitant and justifiably to tell me the extent of what was going on. But I had to learn it kind of piece by piece. But until I saw myself, which was a long time after, is when I fully understood how bad things were. And when was the first time you saw yourself and what was that experience? It was nine months after the accident. My corneas had been severely damaged by the heat and fire. So they covered my eyes with skin grafts and they opened those skin grafts about nine months later. And I remember waking up from that surgery and I was pretty excited to to know they were going to open my eyes. And I, doctors had told me, listen, you're not, you're not going to be, we don't know what you're going to be able to see. It could be nothing or it's at the, at the best, it's going to be very blurry, but I didn't care. I just was like, you got to open I, this, this darkness. It's the most claustrophobic terrifying thing I'd ever experienced. And I woke up from the surgery and right away I could see light and colors and uh, just an indescribable exhale to, you know, thank God I, I can see something. And it was very blurry. Uh, I describe it as being underwater and trying to see something at the other end of the pool. That's how blurry it was. But again, the lights and the colors was was such a blessing. And then when I got home, I just would get real, I'd shut the bathroom door and I'd get right in front of the mirror. I mean, inches. And just look at different parts of my face one at a time so I could finally understand. And uh, it wasn't, I had formed a pretty good picture in my mind. My face, even though it was terribly, terribly disfigured, what really got me was the first time I saw my hands. And my wife still says it. It's one of the but we laugh all the time and joke around, don't take things too serious. It's been a big part of our foundation of overcoming all of this. But that's one of those things that she's she's like, that was one of the worst days of my life was 
the way I burst into tears looking at my hands because they were so disfigured. I had lost half my fingers. And so all the things, you know, as a man, like, I'm not going to play golf again. I'm not going to shoot a gun again. I'm not going to be able to throw a ball with my son. Um, How can I drive? How can I brush my own teeth? I mean, it's just instantly everything about my independence was shattered. And I think that's why my hands bothered me so much. So the timeline kind of was weird for me. Being blind, I went through the emotional things I needed to go through and the realizations that I needed to help me. And that's what got me out of the house. What I am most grateful for when I had my attitude change, to put it simply, uh, was June, like June 30th, the very end of June. And I was alone. I was blind, middle of the night, no visitors. And the next morning, I asked the doctors, when am I going to get out of here? I've already been here since March 26th. And they said, you're going to be here till Christmas. We need six more months. Well, I walked out of that hospital on July 31st, six months ahead of their schedule. So I had already gone through the mental and emotional part that was going to determine where my future was going. So fast forward to like October, when I have my skin grass on my eyes open, it was just another step in the, the process of surgeries and therapy and figuring out what this new life was going to be like. And it's something that, you know, comes up on the podcast and in these conversations, this notion of loss and gain, right? And you certainly lost a lot that day and you would eventually gain a lot as a result of the accident. So how would you explain your experience of of loss and gain in the early years coming out of this and beginning a new life? Oh, wow. There's just so much for me. You know, I did lose my appearance, which, you know, for a lot of people that is is everything. I thought I had lost my career and that was in a sense everything, but I was still a dad. I still had two kids that didn't deserve this. And a lot of officers had died, a lot of civilians in these types of cars that caught on fire. And I'm the one who got a fire truck in the intersection. So who am I to just give up and quit and focus on what I've lost? I need to focus on what I've gained. And what I've gained is a new chapter of life. I survived something that nobody survives. And I am still a husband. That did not change. I am still a father. That didn't change. The way I go about being a husband and a father changed, of course, because of my appearance and my physical limitations that I needed to overcome. And that's just going to be an ongoing process for the rest of my life. But then as far as my career, I was being told by doctors, friends, I would never go back to work. And I was the only one saying, watch me. Yes, I will. I'm not a cop 40 hours a week because of the paycheck and the medical benefits. I'm a police officer 24 hours a day. It's who I am. And I guarantee you, I will go back to work. And I ended up gaining a new portion of my career. I ended up gaining new friendships and new ways of being grateful for things and honoring those who had gone before me and those who would go after me. And I just had so many things happen to me from carrying the Olympic torch to meeting the president of the United States 
to throwing out the first pitch of a baseball game. And then 18 months after the accident, we had our third child. Now, it was so easy to finally realize that it wasn't about getting me out of a car. It wasn't about getting me through one or two surgeries. This is an entire life that should not exist. And if he grows up, his name is Mason. If he grows up and has three or four children, if they grow up and have three or four children, now we're talking about something that can go on and on for generations with no logical end, all because of what some would consider one tragic moment in time. And it's just so much better to look at, like you said, what what have I gained? Well, I, I, I gained a child, a human life uh, that I was responsible for. I got to continue being a dad. I got to continue being a police officer. I ended up being a homicide detective and to work for victims that can't speak for themselves to help families affected by that kind of violence. It's an honor that can't be put into words. And I gained, so I just gained so much. Even though I lost my appearance and most of my eyesight, those are not the ones that take priority. It's it's the positives is what I, I feel and see every day. And there were all of these beautiful things, right, born out of this. And there was obviously a tremendous amount of physical and emotional pain that, that you endured. And I'm curious about sort of the anecdotes to that and, and how you got through that. But, you know, one story you told that was really heartbreaking, your your rock bottom was about how your son experienced you. Can you share that early on? Yeah, that uh, that truly was my rock bottom. So my son, Zane, I was telling you about, he, he was two and he turned three. His birthday is June 2nd. He turned three while I was in a coma and way too young to understand, obviously, what's going on. Just dad wasn't coming home from work. And then I did come home and the appearance that I had was incredibly scary and intimidating for both my children, but he would cry. He would run out of any room I was in. He, he openly said, you're not my dad. And that was, that was my rock bottom for, you know, he was my first son. He was, he was everything to me. And, and I just had an overwhelming guilt. Now, thankfully he doesn't remember that and he doesn't like hearing about it because you know, that is heartbreaking and it was, but I mentioned earlier, kids are incredibly resilient and it only took him a few months to figure it out. And he would show me an old picture of myself and say, Hey dad, this is you. And then we started the the healing process together at, you know, very different ages, but you carry that forward. He's now 23 years old. And I think we have uh, one of the most unique bonds a father and son could have. Just, I couldn't be more proud of him for what he's accomplished in life. And the physical differences, can you explain where just this interview is audio only, the physical difference before and, and after the event, what, what happened to you physically and, and what he's experiencing as far as the difference? Yeah, I mean, I went from being having this thick, dark hair and a darker skin tone. And of course I'm, you know, I'm six foot three, worked out all the time, solid 200 pounds. And then when I come home, I'm, you know, no hair, burn scars that are just incredibly disfiguring and can be described in, in a lot of 
negative ways that uh, I don't need to bore the audience with, but they're bad, especially when it's your entire face. I had no ears, no nose. My eyelids are sewn shut, no hair. Half my fingers are missing. My hands are are deformed and, and bandaged up and still have open wounds that needed to be taken care of. I had a trach in my neck to that they could plug in easily to let me breathe during surgery because I couldn't open my mouth wide enough to get a tube. So I have, you know, this trach in my neck. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine to a child, I look like a monster. And when I look back at those pictures, they're, they're, they're pretty horrific. And how many surgeries would you go on to have? Well, I have had 56 surgeries, but to put that into perspective, I have not had surgery since 2008. And that was by choice. Life's all about choices. Everything that has happened to me before, during, and after this accident were, were my choices. That's a big part of my healing process. But I chose to stop in 2008. And uh, you know, I was happy with what they had accomplished with my appearance. I was happy to just not continue going to the hospital and get poked. And, and I had a couple surgeries that ended up being dangerous with infections afterwards. And so I just decided to stop putting my family through that and focus on just being Jason and going to work every day. I felt good. I was gaining weight again, starting to exercise again, and I was ready to be done. So the 56 surgeries were in that seven-year period. You know, when you say you lost your physical appearance, I imagine there's like a reckoning and a, a rebirth to some extent, right? Because I'm sure, you're, obviously, you're you're grieving a loss. Yes. But then, how do you form this this new identity with this new physicality? Yeah, it's you know, it's interesting. I I remember when I did come out of my coma and I started to get some of the medication cleared out of me. When I would dream, I would look like I used to, and then I would start having dreams where. Half the dream I look like I used to, and then half the dream I look like I currently did. And then eventually I would dream and I only look like the way I do now. So subconsciously, even in dreams, I was going through this transformation. A huge thing that helped me, though, was I was 28 years old, married to a beautiful woman, a father, and I had an incredible career that really stuck by me and also gave the community a chance to know me and support me and follow along in my journey. So I was so incredibly lucky and blessed in my circumstance because I've talked to so many other burn survivors and a lot of them, you know, younger and I can't just say, hey, it'll be okay. No, I mean my my story is mine and I had all those things in place that I, I was almost, it was impossible for me to fail looking back on it. But other people who are younger, you can't, I can't tell them, well, listen, you're going to meet and marry the love of your life. You're going to be a parent. You're going to have a good career because they don't have those things yet. And you add these injuries, it makes it a lot tougher, but I had all those things. So for me, the physical transformation was, it wasn't, necessarily difficult on the appearance side of it. Uh, people staring at me and things like that. Yeah, I have my good and bad days like everybody, but it was more like 
my hands, learning how to function again. When we had a baby, how am I going to change his diaper? How am I going to be helpful? How can I feed him? How can I put a bottle in the microwave and turn it on? I can't even see or, or touch buttons with my hands. And, oh, I, by the way, I want to drive. I want to, I want to go back to work. I want to shoot a gun again. All these things that people are looking at me like, Jason, you're not going to do any of these things. And I'm, all I thought about every day is how do I do these things? And I worked toward doing them. And now, I mean, my hands are still incredibly disfigured. A lot of surgeries, a lot of therapy, and a lot of learning. I can do everything. I don't even remember what it's like to have 10 dexterous fingers. Everything I need to do in life, I can do. I travel alone, get through airports, get into hotels, go to restaurants by myself and and eat, which is astonishing. 10 years ago, I would have said, no way could I ever do that alone. But I get dressed in the morning in a hotel by myself. And it takes me a lot longer to do a button-down dress shirt, to tie a tie, to tie my shoes. But I do it, and then I feel a sense of accomplishment every time. It never goes away. I just continue to feel stronger and proud of myself. And that's that's an awesome way to live. I, I, I just, I, I love that I don't have to ever take anything for granted. Every day is is a gift, and every day I get to do something that reminds me of how far I've come. You know, I'm curious about what you think it is within you and whether you knew it to be true about yourself before the accident. But I hear you talk about all these things and I can only imagine the frustration. All of it, right? All of these little things you took for granted. And everyone has frustrations, big and small, right? But where do you go to have the mindset that you have? Well, this is something I had to definitely learn afterwards because, like I said, in when I was introducing myself, I, you know, I kind of led such a good life. I didn't know anything about adversity, especially life-changing adversity. So I didn't know anything about myself. And if you would have told me what was going to happen before it happened, I would have said, "No way, I, I can't go through that. I'll, I'll give up. I'll quit." I'm sure I would have thought those things. So I had to learn things as I went. And one of the first things that I I realize and I'm very grateful for is that we have to have accountability no matter what happens. And it'd be very easy to walk around saying, why me? I could be angry at God. I could be angry at the guy who hit me. I could, I could cry and complain and be like, I was serving my community. I was minding my business at a traffic light. You know, all those things that I could think that aren't going to do me or my support system any good, but realizing that I'm the one who chose to be a police officer. I'm the one who chose to answer for a call that I had no business answering up for. I'm the one who chose to only spend four years in the military and gave up a college golf scholarship. I made choices throughout my life that got me into that intersection, into that fire, into that hospital. And every choice that I make going forward is going to take me where I need to go. So I, I'm always reminding myself, I'm exactly where I've chosen to be. And if I'm out traveling, I mean, in the past two weeks alone, I've been to Indianapolis, Oklahoma City, and Minneapolis. And I do travel alone because I enjoy it. It gives me strength. I, I did, there was a long time I couldn't do it. But I finally got to a point where I could do it. And yes, people stare at me. My appearance is... Not something you see every day, but when people stare at me, usually it's with kindness and compassion and somebody will smile, but I can only imagine what they're thinking when I'm sitting in a airport restaurant eating alone. They probably 
the compassion turns into like feeling sorry. And I always want to say to them, you have no idea. I have the most beautiful life you can imagine. I wouldn't trade places with anybody in this world. And then I'll think about my son who was born afterwards. And now he's playing college baseball in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think about my daughter who I got to walk down the aisle. And no matter what I went through, I wouldn't want to miss that moment for anything in the world. And then she had her first son last July and made me a grandpa. So it's just nonstop. Yes, I do have frustrations and I do have bad days like everybody, but I have so many things that I'll let myself feel what I need to feel. I mean, I don't I don't mind shedding some tears. I don't mind being angry or frustrated or a little bit down because I also certainly don't mind when I'm laughing and feel motivated and enthusiastic. So we have to embrace all these emotions. But when I'm ready to change my attitude and hit the reset button, I have so many things I can go back to and think about how that felt and how grateful I am. And then it's like, okay, what, you know, what's next? And I loved as you talk about the full range of emotions and that you do have them all, you had a wonderful definition of vulnerability. Do you remember how you described it? Well, I usually describe vulnerability as, it's not a word we like to use and it's certainly not something we like to feel, but you will never find more strength or beauty than inside of vulnerability. And it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let people fight for you when you can't fight for yourself. And I have, you know, I got tired of using other people's sayings and cliches, which I love, those little motivational sentences or whatever. But I finally came up with my own. And I even had to have it tattooed right on my forearm so I can see it whenever I want to. And it says, Sometimes the most beautiful inspirational changes will disguise themselves as utter devastation. Be patient. And that's how I I think of it. You got to be patient in your grief, patient in your struggle. And vulnerability will, it will show you some beautiful, beautiful things uh, about yourself. You just have to be, be open to it. Yeah, I think you said something along the lines of that it is the intersection of beauty and courage, which I thought was was so well said. Yeah. Speaking of tattoos, and thank you, I was going to ask you to share your words that are tattooed. You also, because you could no longer wear it on your hand, have a tattoo of your wedding ring. Yes. And there are many stories about you evolving and changing as a man but also as as a husband and wife, how did your relationship with Susie change? Well, it changed in those you know early days when everything fell on her. Now she has she spent a lot of time thinking her husband was going to die in a very terrible way, and she's going to be a widow with two little kids. She had to give up her career and decide you know how she was going to move forward and but every day that I kept surviving, she kept going. And, you know, she even tells a story that like two weeks after the accident, she was driving home from the hospital and she just finally couldn't take it. And she pulled over and she was screaming and crying and beating on the dashboard and just begging God to take me, to let me die because she can't handle this. I can't handle this. Just end it. And she said that lasted about five minutes and then her tears dried up and she drove back home to 
be a mom and never look back. And you know, again, I love that vulnerable side of people. It's okay to to feel those things. But you know, our relationship changed just in the sense that she was like we went from being co-parents and and partners and lovers and all this stuff to I was like her third child at the time. I was she was my caretaker and she had to help me bathe and get dressed and she had to learn things about medical procedures that nobody should have to know. But then once I started getting better and when I went back to work and we started to okay, now I'm back to work. You're you're a stay-at-home mom. We had the the little the third baby and it was almost like life became not only normal again, but new. And we found our groove and just started to live our lives as if nothing had really happened. And we were just normal. We would still have the same fights and we would still have the same hopes and dreams and goals. We'd start to go on vacations in the summer to the beach in California or, or whatever. And so it was a interesting shift, but I think it only made us better and stronger. So uh, I was very, very lucky to have had somebody who understood when you say your vows for better or worse, sometimes the or worse happens and it's still worth fighting for because marriage is possibly the most difficult thing we do in life. And when you add in a little bit of life-changing adversity, it gets a whole lot harder. What is the question that you are most frequently asked? You you now tell your story in service of others. And what is the question that people ask most frequently? Oh, I get a lot of questions. Um, I guess most frequently... People will just simply say, it's not even really a question. They'll say something before they ask me a question that really sparks me to give my response. And it usually starts with something along the lines of, you know, because I talk in my speeches, there's 300 people in the crowd. And I, I explained before I get into my story, my injuries, the burns, my former career are the two least important parts of this story. Life happens to all of us and every one of you is going through something right now. And the person next to you has no idea what it is. We're all going through something. Somebody will always say to me, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm going through something right now. And they might even tell me I'm, I'm going through a divorce or I, I battled cancer a year ago. Nothing to the extent of what you've gone through. They always say that. And then they'll ask the question, uh, you know, of like, I really want to know how you got through this. And even though I've just explained I, what I what I went through and how I got through it. But I have to remind them, first of all, don't let the pain of today blind you from the promise of tomorrow. And whatever you are going through right now, you cannot compare it to somebody else. That is so unfair to yourself. I mean, it, it's okay. You know, like if I see somebody in a wheelchair, for example, yes, I feel for them. And respect and compassion is is a wonderful thing that we should all feel. And I'm grateful that I have the ability to walk. But when I leave that person, I don't spend my day just thinking, well, things could be worse. You could be in a wheelchair. I'm still burnt. I still have bad eyesight. I still have messed up hands. I still have my own problems to deal with. So I don't compare it to somebody else. And I always try to encourage people, don't Don't do that because you're just holding yourself back from overcoming what you're going through. And a lot worse is coming for all of us if we're lucky enough to live 
a nice long life. We're going to lose people that we we love. We're going to suffer through, you know, death in our family. A lot of us are going to go through divorce. We're going to have difficulties with our children or our jobs. And again, that's only if we're lucky. And that's what people lose sight of. Like the longer you live, the more stuff that's going to happen. And it's life's about adversity and, and hard times. So that's the question that I, I usually answer because it'll come in the form of, like I said, a statement like, oh, yours is so much worse than mine. No, 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 it's not. You can't look at it like that. Well, it's this idea of comparative suffering, right? Well, compared to your suffering, my suffering, my and the irony is that suffering is a shared human experience, right? And in order to to move through it, we have to allow ourselves to feel it. So when you minimize it or dismiss it because it doesn't look like someone else is suffering, I think that's what what people do. So it becomes exactly. a disservice, right? It does. Yeah, you certainly cannot minimize. I mean, if if they say that comparison is the thief of joy, you know, somebody has a better house or a better job, more money in the bank. It's 10 times worse than that on the side of adversity. You cannot insult or minimize your own struggles. You have, because it's, it's, you're the one who has to go through every day. I don't have to go through what somebody else is going through. So I don't fight that fight. I fight my fight. And I want people to, I want to encourage them to, if they can see that more clearly and just each day you get a chance to to be better than who you were yesterday. You get a chance to overcome your adversity and it's only going to prepare you for what's what's next. It's very, very important. And so when you do share your story and you said that sort of the heart of the question is, you know, how did how did you get through this? And as you said, that speaking to other people, you know, looking for answers to get through their thing. What do you hope that people take away from your story? What are your most important lessons and the message that you care the most deeply about when you share your story? The most important lesson is to recognize that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it and that we are in control of our attitude. I don't mind being vulnerable and telling people, like I told you, I cried every day. I yelled and cussed at people who were there to love and support me. I was not the best version of myself. I was incredibly, I was a broken man. I was incredibly vulnerable. But through this experience, I did have the chance to choose and change my attitude. I did have a chance to grow and get better. And most importantly, what I've learned is no matter your age, your race, your gender, how much money you have in the bank, we are all created equal on one thing, and that's our human spirit. And our human spirit is designed to take us away from risk and straight toward reward. And the irony is not lost on me. I was born and raised in Phoenix. I worked for the Phoenix Police Department, and then I rose from the ashes like a phoenix. And I kind of love what that symbolizes, but that is in all of us. That is my biggest message. Let your human spirit soar, because it will, and it will take you right where you need to go, and it's only positive places. Well, Jason, I can't thank you enough. It's an incredible story and you're a beautiful storyteller, which makes my job very easy. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I uh, I hope we'll have the opportunity to meet in person one day. I would love that. Oh, thank you, Kimmy. I really, really enjoyed sharing my story with you. I appreciate this. 
So we end with something that's a little fun called lightning round. Are you ready for it? Oh, I love this. Yeah, let me have it. All right. Binge-worthy show. Ozark. Best way to spend a Friday night. Oh, in a jacuzzi with a good bottle of red wine. Favorite city. Ooh, favorite city, Boston. Biggest pet peeve. People not using their blinkers. Tell me what you're doing, what your intentions are. God, I hate that. (laughs) In 10 years, I hope to be. Uh, In 10 years, I hope to be a public speaker, have five grandkids, and still have the same health and appetite for life that I do right now. I'm only 49 years old, and I really, really do look forward to the next 30 or 40 years that I have left. So 10 years from now, if I could be exactly where I am today, that would be great. Well, I I wish you all of that and more. I have no doubt. Today's episode with Jason supports 100 Club of Arizona. 100 Club provides financial assistance to families of first responders who were seriously injured or killed in the line of duty. You can learn more about them at 100club.org. If you are moved by Jason's story and his message, I hope you will think of someone in your life who is going through something difficult and share this episode. He has so much wisdom to offer and you never know the difference one person's words and story can make in another person's life. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.